Well, I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric and saber rattling around this that is definitely a little bit concerning. So how seriously do we need to look at this? The story essentially here is um, broad strokes. The U.S. is going to deploy up to six nuclear-capable B-52 bombers in Australia, according to news reports out of Australia on Monday. Now, in response, China has said that that's really going to affect stability in the region, uh, peace. It could be jeopardized. Uh, they're not happy about it, basically, is the bottom line. So let's find out exactly what's going on. We're going to chat now with John Gretzner, who is a non-executive chair of Intercedent, an Asian-based advisory firm and a fellow with Canadian Global Affairs Institute. John, uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. Good morning. Okay, so let's just um, let's just go through the plan here. What is it exactly that the U.S. has announced they might be doing, or the Australians have announced the U.S. might be doing? Well, the news report suggests that they're preparing an airport uh, to accommodate at least C6, uh, C6 um, high, high-level flying bombers that can, or uh, if required, could be potentially equipped with nuclear weapons. And, and where are they planning to, to set up this base? It's, I mean, they already have a base there, correct? They have a marine base there, and there was an agreement uh, to sell um, eight submarines, which to replace the French contract for uh, right. nuclear submarines. For uh, uh, initially, the estimate is seventy billion U.S., but there are estimates up to one hundred and seventy-one billion U.S. for the life of the program. Gotcha. Okay, so it, would it be fair to characterize this as an expansion of uh, an existing installation? Well, I think uh, the U.S. relations with the Australia, obviously, over historically since World War II or during World War II, they started as a, a security partner in the Asia-Pacific. Um, and one looks at that and from a historical point of view, to a certain extent, uh, China in World War II profited from that partnership. And obviously, the situations have changed. Mm-hmm. Uh but this is an extension of Obama's commitment to put Marines on the ground uh, in Australia and uh, an extension of the contract for the submarines, which obviously has a large commercial benefit to the U.S. Uh, suppliers. But uh, putting in, uh, depending on how you see military assets, they're either a, a contributing factor to uh, tension or they're a deterrent to uh, to uh, war. And, and that goes back to the whole peace with Chamberlain and, and Hitler is yes. a, a debate. And What's the official line from the Aussies in terms of why this is being done and why we're seeing this development? I think the Australian government's position, uh, despite having an f- extremely robust trade position with uh, People's Republic of China, is that there's concerns about statements by the current leadership of China that they believe that deterrence is the best way to bring stability, and therefore they formed uh, they formed the Quad, which is um, uh, India, Japan, the United States, and Australia, um, to be a defense organization comparable to potentially, depending on how it moves forward in a constructive way, to ideally what NATO did up until the war in Ukraine, which is is an anchor for peace by having a, a an articulated position for for security in the region. Region, but the danger, of course, is misinterpretation on uh, on behalf of the Xi government, uh, and uh, and triggering something that's unfortunate either by accident right. or by or by extrapolation. And already, China has said this this is not something that they're comfortable with. Right, their official response is um, this is not a good idea. Basically, right. 
I don't think China wants to uh, the government of Xi Jinping, and I, I, I think we have to learn to talk about countries in terms of their the vested interest of their political leadership of the day rather than categorize them as countries because sure. that yeah. itself yep. is self-prophesizing. Um, we know that in, even in a democracy, you can't hold the people of a country accountable for every action of their leader. In a, in a, so I think we have to look at this in the context of what's in the best interest of the people. Obviously, Zhao Lijian, who's the foreign affairs spokesperson for uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China has has been quite clear that they see this as a uh, a way of creating tension and obviously potentially triggering an arm race, which is definitely not in the interest of anyone at this point in time with a larger uh, set of global problems from overpopulation, climate change, debt. And obviously we already have one war that's uh, the Fraser Institute uh, calculated that the potential long-term economic losses are or costs are 8.9 trillion to the world economy and you mentioned an arms race and 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 that is what uh was brought up that what was mentioned by the foreign ministry spokesperson from the chinese government saying this could potentially trigger an arms race right they may respond that way that that is the danger i mean obviously military assets in any country have an opportunity cost in terms of uh, other social benefits. Um, They do have the benefit of being a technical driver. Um, The microchip, which is the issue of the day with the U.S. Chip Act, goes back to the Kennedy Space Program. Uh, So you can, you know, these are a uh, double-edged path forward. But ideally, the People's Republic of China's leadership understand that one of the contributing factors to the demise of the Soviet Union was, in fact, an arms race because mm-hmm. it disproportionately shifted uh, resources away from the uh, people and, and created opportunities post-Afghanistan uh, for the reforms that led to the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the uh, opportunities to expand uh, what I would describe as a constructive civil society and democracy in Eastern Europe. So, I mean, how concerned are you by this kind of rhetoric? Do you see it as this is rhetoric and we'll see where it plays out, or is this something that we need to be concerned with? I think we have to recognize first, uh, as a country, that we have a national deficit in our uh, independent resources, our academic resources, and our corporate resources in terms of understanding what's going on in Asia-Pacific. And there may be part of that that's being addressed in the Indo-Pacific strategy that the government's looking at. I think we have to be cognizant that Canada is a unique country and uh, that we are immune in our own minds, but perhaps not in reality from issues offshore. And I think, therefore, we have to pay attention. And I would argue that we have to have a more proactive uh, engagement. Uh, I think we have foreign policy goals, but I would describe personally been advocating in some of what I write about what I call tactical engagement or an actual action plan that could be including improving civil society in the 12 Pacific Island nations that are in play between China and Australia and the U.S. in terms of hearts and minds for authoritarian Mm -hmm. government versus democracy. That can be engagement and mitigation of the tensions in the Korean Peninsula. That can be looking for a solution for restoration of democracy and, and solving the Rakhine problem and uh, in Myanmar or, or historically Burma, and but I think we can't sit back anymore and have an underfunded uh, 
by G, uh, G20 targets or OECD targets for foreign development assistance. We can't sit back and not recognize that we have a proud military tradition that needs to be upgraded and both uh, and possibly look at the next generation of opportunities and challenges rather than historic ones. Uh, and we have to look at our own position in the Arctic from our point yeah. of view of sovereignty. Yeah. So it's a complicated issue, but I think that we, you know, the solution comes from, I think, that Parliament and provincial governments have to start looking outward as recognizing that the livelihood of the Canadian people is tied to uh, uh, world stability and world peace. And, and obviously even, you know, uh, where I am in Vancouver, we've just come off in a historic drought that potentially is tied to to climate change, whether there's global warming or not, I don't want to get into, but there's definitely an impact on climate change uh, short term that we have to understand. And I think, unfortunately, you know, when you start deploying military assets on both sides of uh, the Asia-Pacific uh, region, that you're potentially going to miss the important issues that are going to actually uh, set the tone and the, the prosperity for the next 30 years. But like you say, it's so important, and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think a lot of Canadians have confidence that we're doing what we need to be doing, that we're being as proactive as obviously you say we should be. So, I mean, that needs to be something that we talk about more often. Yeah, I think we have to. If you, uh, it's quite a popular TV show, the beginning of Aaron Sorkin's newsroom, where he recognized that uh, in a long litany of concerns that America is not the greatest place, uh, and uh, we have to be honest about uh, Canada, not in terms of, I think, our domestic life, because we are pretty lucky to be living here or mm-hmm. come from mm-hmm. here or move, move move here by anybody's standards historically or even comparatively to the other 190 countries in the world, 192 countries in the world. But I think we have to be objective about really that we're not pulling our weight, uh, both in terms of ideas and solutions in terms of military assets and development assistance. Uh, Bill Gates gives more money in development assistance offshore than Canada does. Wow. Wow. Pretty stark assessment, but I I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, John, and we've talked about it on the show before, and uh, I look forward to having you back, and we'll talk about it again as we go along. Thank you, sir. You have a great week, and enjoy Edmonton. It's a lovely town. Thank you very much. Uh, John Gretzner, non-executive chair of Intercedent, an Asian-based advisory firm and a fellow of Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.